Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It looks like things are about to get a lot less permissive in Indonesia. A raft of reforms swatted down by protests in 2019 now look set to become law, banning, among much else, sex outside of marriage. And you might think that the use of leeches and maggots in medicine stopped in the Victorian era. Quite the opposite. They're still in use to help with repairing blood vessels and wounds. And two Welsh companies are doing a roaring trade in them. But first... On North Korea's state television news today, reporting of a final test toward putting a satellite into orbit that could be used for spying. It's been a busy weekend for the regime. Yesterday, it launched two ballistic missiles towards Japan. They landed harmlessly in the sea. The tests were publicly condemned by South Korea and by Japan's Minister of Defense, who cited significantly increasing tensions, rapidly escalating provocations. All this bluster is likely to have no effect at all on North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un. And as fears grow that North Korea is preparing another nuclear test, the question of how to respond is growing more urgent. Yesterday, the North Koreans launched two ballistic missiles towards Japan, and that didn't really come as much of a surprise. In fact, it's a record-breaking year in terms of missile launches from the North. Andrew Knox is our sole bureau chief. But it's not just the number of tests they've been doing, also what they've been testing that's been a matter of concern. Well, let's go back and, and get an overview of what's been going on this year. You say it's become more than routine. 
So back at the start of the year in January, they did more launches than they have in any month to date. And they were testing a number of different things, or at least so they claim, one of which was a hypersonic missile. Getting towards September and October, they started launching missiles at a really accelerated rate, firing artillery into areas where both Koreas have an agreement not to test weaponry. They fired a missile that overflew Japan before landing in the Pacific, which prompted the Japanese government to send out a warning in certain prefectures telling residents to take shelter. There have also been some slightly more unusual things than just, you know, sending a rocket up into the air. On September 25th, they launched a missile from a platform submerged under a lake, or at least so it appears, later claiming that they were developing underwater launch silos. On November 18th, they launched something really concerning, something, in fact, really huge. And what we're seeing here, Jason, is this really sort of highly produced, well, slick by North Korean standards, maybe not quite Hollywood grade, propaganda video from North Korean state television showing what they claim to be the Hwasong-17, which would be the largest intercontinental ballistic missile that North Korea had ever tested. And when you bear in mind that they had already shown the capability to produce missiles that can reach the U.S. mainland, that's a, that's a really big missile. So we can see them wheeling the thing out and raising it up on a mobile launcher, and then there's an on-screen countdown. The soldier shouts fire and smashes a big red button. And up it goes. And that test caused international condemnation as it sort of was launched towards Japan. But to be honest, given the scale of it, it was nowhere near the level of condemnation or, in fact, coverage you would see from North Korea doing much smaller scale, more infrequent launches even a few years ago, which really speaks to how routine this has all become. Yesterday, the two ballistic missiles that they launched towards what's either called the East Sea or the Sea of Japan were really nothing special as far as we can tell in the immediate aftermath. They seem to have been medium-range ballistic missiles. But just before, on December 16th, North Korean state media said it had successfully tested two different things. One was a, quote, new type strategic weapon system, end quote, and the other was a new solid fuel engine for a ballistic missile. And earlier today, state media said that North Korea had tested a sort of final stage device that would be used eventually to launch military spy satellites into orbit. So why do you think this this ramp up is going on now, reminiscent of uh, all the launches that came in, in 2017 and the uh, all the news that came around that? Why is this coming up again now? The test of this new engine and the uh, spy satellite equipment, those are kind of similar to what they were doing at the start of the year, which is they were testing new technology to ensure that it works. But in the interim, all the missiles that went up in autumn probably had a different purpose. There were some novel elements to them, but mostly it was stuff that the North Koreans already knew worked. So that essentially suggests that more than likely what they were doing was not testing the technology, but rather testing their own preparedness to use that technology. So there is an element of theater here, of of propaganda, of letting the world know what they're capable of. Yes. I mean, as far as North Korea is concerned, it's just doing the exact same thing that South Korea and America do with 
regularity. They often hold exercises to test the capacity and readiness of their own forces. And over the summer, they held the first full-scale joint exercises they have in five years. But what it does show you is that they're ticking things off their to-do list. So back in 2021, Kim Jong-un issued a sort of military wish list for his scientists and soldiers, where he detailed the weapon systems that he wanted to develop. Among them were an ICBM that would go 15,000 kilometers. If the Hwasong-17 lives up to expectations, he's now got that. What's more, they're signaling that they don't just have the weapons, they know how to use them, and that they can't be prevented from using them. So the arsenal of smaller weapons shows that they'd be able to counter threats posed by the South Korean armed forces. They're signaling that were the South Koreans or the Americans to try and take preemptive action, they'd be really unlikely to eliminate all of their nuclear weapons. What's more, in September, Mr. Kim announced that a nuclear strike could potentially be triggered quote, automatically, end quote, under certain conditions, which would include presumably his own assassination. That's combined with another thing that's on the wish list and sort of expected to maybe be ready soon, which is tactical nuclear weapons, i.e. nuclear weapons that are designed to be used at short range and potentially on the battlefield. Now, the North Koreans have been it seems from satellite imagery, preparing for a nuclear test at some unknown point in the future would be their seventh test. And what most people expect them to be testing is whether, in fact, they have effectively designed this sort of tactical nuclear weapon. So of all of this signaling then to South Korea and to America, what's the response from from those countries been? So America and South Korea have talked up the, quote, ironclad, end quote, alliance and threatened to annihilate the North if it tries any funny business. The Americans moved an aircraft carrier back to the waters of the east of the peninsula briefly. The South Koreans have test-fired their own missiles. They've scrambled jets. They've fired artillery. They've essentially been conducting like-for-like drills. And both countries have imposed new unilateral sanctions on North Korean individuals and organizations that supposedly aided the weapons development program. But essentially what they're doing is sticking to a rather dog-eared playbook that's failed for decades, and that's starting to feel like a bit of a questionable strategy. So what's wrong with it then? How could things be done differently? America claims it's willing to sit down without any preconditions, but really there's one huge condition attached, which is that the eventual aim of talks be denuclearization. Mr. Kim has made it very clear that North Korea's nuclear status is, quote, irreversible, end quote, and he even codified this policy in law in September. So as long as America continues to demand that he gives up his nukes, he just has no interest in talking about anything, really. Yong song yo South Korea's president, has said that North Korea has, quote, nothing to gain from nuclear weapons, end quote, but clearly Mr. Kim doesn't see it that way. They are essential to the regime's survival and security. And the longer he waits, the more time he has to develop his weapon. So he's not eager to get to the table anytime soon. So the longer America and South Korea content themselves with kicking the can down the road and offering only ineffective bluster, the stronger North Korea gets. And that'll just make Mr. Kim more confident he can resist the pressure. It'll also heighten the risk of miscalculation, which has potentially disastrous results. Andrew, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me. 
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. In 2019, the streets of Indonesia filled with thousands of protesters. They were railing against proposed changes to the country's criminal code. Harsh new laws that would ban sex outside of marriage grabbed most of the headlines. But anti-defamation rules, making it harder to criticize parts of the state, were equally worrying to the demonstrators. Those plans were eventually put on hold. But earlier this month, that criminal code at last worked its way through Indonesia's parliament. The draft legislation is still to be signed by the president, Joko Widodo, and it increasingly looks like this time it will be passed into law. The new criminal code is built by Joko Widodo, or Joko as we know him, as a gift to the nation. Farachia writes for The Economist. But in reality, it marks the most illiberal turn in Indonesia since the country embraced democracy in the late 1990s. So let's walk through what these laws would actually do. So among its many harsh rules, the code criminalizes cohabitation and sex outside marriage. It expands the provision for blasphemy and makes it illegal for Indonesians to leave their religion or persuade anyone else to be a non-believer. The code also includes anti-defamation provisions against the president, the vice president, state institutions and even Pancasila which is Indonesia's national ideology. It also recognizes the importance of living law. These include Sharia-style laws, forcing women to wear hijab, for example, or encourage things like genital mutilation or polygamy, depending on the local laws of each province. And what kinds of impacts do you think these laws would have when enacted? Well, firstly, criminalizing consensual sex outside of marriage with up to a year in prison for those found guilty, is a gross invasion of privacy. It allows spouses to report on their partners for adultery or family members to report gay relationships that they dislike. The move also seems likely to produce an uptick in child marriages. Parents may be more inclined to stop their children from having premarital sex and make them get married instead. This is already a problem in Indonesia as 14% of Indonesian women are married off before they are of legal age. Then there is also the issue of unregistered marriages or what we call nikah siri and it affects millions of rural and indigenous Indonesians. One survey found that one out of four women were registered in such marriages in 2012. The reason why nikah series or unregistered marriages are quite popular is because people find it quite a chore to travel all the way to the cities to get the documents. And so even asking an official to travel down to the rural villages to witness a marriage can cost about one and a half times the monthly wage of an Indonesian living on the national poverty line. Because customary law or living law is quite important on a local level, a lot of them feel 
quite comfortable to carry on in marriages that are not recognized officially by the state as long as their local heads or religious heads have sanctioned it. And what's been the response then to this penal code? Oh, people are deeply unhappy about it. We're already seeing some protests. Journalists, for example, fear that a provision about spreading fake news will be vague enough to include anything that seems to counter state ideology. So one journalist I spoke to said that effectively even a report on LGBT rights can fall under this category. The move also undermines the government's strategy of attracting digital nomads, right? And this is happening just as tourism arrivals have started to recover post-pandemic. The new penal code also makes it really hard for NGOs to dispense contraceptives or demonstrate how to use them. So this is going to provide quite a hurdle for anyone to combat the spread of HIV or AIDS, especially amongst NGOs. So in total, the, the penal code is, is entirely illiberal, entirely retrograde. Well, not exactly, Jason. There are some sections that are reasonably sensible. For example, it recommends that the death penalty should be used only as a last resort. And this applies to those on death row. Their sentences can be converted to long prison terms if they have good conduct. But there are still plenty of areas where, despite some improvement, it largely remains inadequate. So, for example, abortion remains largely illegal. A woman can be jailed for up to four years for having gone through one. So in 2009, a health law made some exceptions to this rule for victims of rape, provided that the abortion was carried out within six weeks of gestation, which is largely too short for most mums to know that they are pregnant even. This has been since revised to 12 weeks in the new penal code. Still, though, all told, it does seem to be a, a backward step and, and counter to what Indonesia says it, it wants to do, for example, with digital nomads and so on. Why do all of this if, it, if it's causing all of this upset? Well, largely, the current code, which has been in place for over a century, is an inherited remnant of Dutch rule. And so it's not being seen as fit for purpose. One deputy minister said the new code will bring law in line with Indonesian values. What's troubling is that the country seems to be replacing a colonial hangover with a new penal code that is increasingly conservative and has an Islamic slant. So it begs the question of what Indonesians do cherish in line with their values. And it seems somewhat at odds with the, the image that Jokowi wanted to project when Indonesia was hosting the G20 last month. Yes, the G20 seemed to show him stepping out as a peacekeeper who can bring opposite sides together. And overseas, he presents this tolerant, circular image as a Muslim leader. But I don't think that plays very well among Islamic conservatives who increasingly represents a powerful voting bloc. So I think it's largely a play for his voter base back home. But it's a play that led to protests last time around, seems to have sparked some this time around. How do you see them actually coming into force? At this rate, having seen the protests of 2019, I think there is considerable resistance to the new penal code. Political analysts have said that this penal code minimally differs from the one that was presented in 2019. So... The penal code is not due to take effect for three years, 
Jokowi would be out of office by then and he constitutionally cannot run for another term. If signed, the penal code is definitely not a legacy for Jokowi to be proud of. Farah, thanks very much for your time. A pleasure always, Jason. Just off the M4 motorway is a rural village called Hendy. Caitlin Talbot writes about Britain for The Economist. It's a typically sleepy Welsh village in between patchwork fields and a beautiful coastline. But there's one surprising fact about it that's not immediately apparent. It's home to far more leeches than locals. And it's not just leeches. Wales leads the world in maggot and leech production. It might seem gross, but they in fact play a vital role in healthcare. I drove 30 miles south of Hendy to an industrial town called Bridgend. It's nestled between coastal steel ports and coal mining valleys. And in this sort of green warehouse is Biomond, a European wound care business. They supply thousands of maggots to the NHS. There is an openness in Wales. There's an openness to a lot of things, which is lovely. I was born in London. I've been in England all my life. I did my first degree at King's. Then I went to Liverpool. And coming here was just really refreshing. That's Dr. Yamni Nigam. She's an outspoken advocate for maggot therapy. Maggots, I mean, they've been around 250 million years. So they've evolved and evolved and evolved. You know, we're quite new humans, 200,000 years old. Their natural environment is to live in mucky, festering feasts of decay and stuff. So they have evolved really superb antimicrobial mechanisms for themselves. So maggots are used to treat chronic wounds. They excrete these enzymes that break down dead tissue and then they hoover it up to eat. It's actually a misconception that maggots eat flesh. They don't have teeth to eat. A maggot essentially secretes these enzymes onto a wound and then sucks up the decomposed tissue. They have amazing antimicrobial mechanisms. They can actually work on wounds a lot better than many other antibiotics can. They're often used as a last line of defense after nothing else has worked. But this makes them really key in the fight against antimicrobial resistance. So a patient will come in, their foot sort of varying colors, black, blue and purple, and literally hundreds of maggots will be applied. Many patients find this so revolting that Biomont has found alternative ways to give people these maggots, for instance, putting them in a bag. Maggots have a long history of use in health. We might find it surprising that they're used by the NHS, but they're mentioned in the Bible's book of Job. They have this really long connection between natural therapy and health. Aboriginal Australians were using maggots to treat wounds. And even during the First World War, they saved thousands of toes and fingers of soldiers. So even though maggots have proven to be very helpful over thousands of years, there's a big stigma against them today. 36% of people said no outright, that they wouldn't have maggots on a wound. Even when we had amputation, we had, you know, would you amputate or would you have maggots? 91% said they'd have maggots. And that's it. It's the fear, it's the disgust, it's the stigma, it's association with everything horrible. 
That led Dr. Nigam to lead the Love a Maggot campaign, which aims to reduce the yuck factor of larval therapy. They work with schools, nurses, universities to dispel the myth that maggots are disgusting, essentially. So working with nurses is really important for them. But if Wales accepts maggots, it also accepts leeches. Biofarm, Britain's only leech production sites back in our rural village of Hendy, supplies up to 70% of leeches used worldwide. This tiny factory is potentially helping thousands of patients across the world to reconnect various tissues. But you might think, why Wales? Why is this tiny rural village responsible for 70% of leech use worldwide? The answer is pretty simple. The water is outstanding, and leeches are very picky when it comes to water. Like maggots, there's a long history of using leeches in medicine, and much of this was focused in Britain. Victorian leech collectors were people who sploshed around disgusting, grubby marshland and used their own blood to tempt leeches to attach to them. Often this was done with horses, and then once a horse keeled over because it had so much blood taken, people would run into the marshes and try to attract 10, 20 leeches to each limb, leaving really distinctive bites on their limbs. Around 42 million leeches a year were used to treat everything from colds to dysentery in a method called bloodletting, where a leech would be attached and would fill up with blood, helping to relieve some sort of pain. These leech collectors would sell them to doctors for a penny a pinch, quite literally. South Wales proved the most fertile place for leeches to grow. Welsh leeches contributed a quarter of Britain's parasitic profits, around £250,000 per year during the Victorian era, and that's £24 in today's money. But leeches fell out of favour. With Louis Pasteur's germ theory of 1861, the practice of bloodletting quite quickly became seen as something quite archaic. But while it fell out of public practice, the bloodsuckers did not vanish from sickbeds. In 1922, James Joyce was leeched around one of his eyes in an attempt to cure his blindness. And in 1953, Stalin had leeches placed behind his ears on his deathbed. And modern medical wards still routinely use leeches in plastic and reconstructive surgeries. South Wales has returned to having a near monopoly on their trade. Leeches and maggots might still seem like treatments of the past, but Welsh scientists are looking into the future too. Many other plants, insects and even soils could have similar antimicrobial properties. And it's those that live in really grimy environments that are most likely to have really good defences. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.